RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by Gameprint.net. We thank them and our patrons for their support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 413 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, May 14th, 2019, and available for download or streaming on Friday, May 17th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. All right, Kenna, we've got a big show this week. Why don't you tell us what we've got coming up? Well, this week we're trekking out some new information about the Jean-Luc Picard series, and it's not the title. Then we look at doing the right thing in the wrong way, head to the Paley Center for your consideration, and trek out the numbers for Star Trek Discovery. In Star Trek Online and gaming news, you can now harness the technology of Section 31 in Star Trek Online. And could loot boxes and video games be disappearing soon? Then, we are thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with the incomparable mother of Klingons herself, Mary Chifo. Of course, as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. That's right, Captains. Remember that those hailing frequencies are always open, and we love to hear from you between episodes, so please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Captains, did you have the opportunity of catching the DS9 documentary titled what we left behind anthony and i sure did and we had a lot to say about it and i got a poster trek out after hours our unedited unscripted podcast exclusive to our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash priority one this week anthony and i talk about the deep space nine documentary our takeaways what we enjoyed most what we enjoyed least And if that wasn't enough, you can also join us in a private chat room to talk about things like the latest headlines from the Star Trek multiverse. Now, Captains, we understand that a financial contribution may not always be possible, but there are other ways that you can help support the show. For instance, we're looking for volunteers to join the production team. Specifically, we're looking for audio editors to help clean up a segment or two. We currently have a great team working hard each week, but many hands make light work. Shoot us an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com with audio editor in the subject line. Now, let's check out all the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. Jump what places. I don't know. Then let's check it out. If you're excited for the next Star Trek series, but you don't live in the United States, you may have wondered where you'd be able to watch Jean-Luc's return. Well... Wonder no more. 
On Monday, May 13th, it was announced that CBS Studios International and Amazon have teamed to bring the legendary Jean-Luc Picard to an international audience, excluding the United States and Canada. In a press release, Vice President of Worldwide Content Licensing for Amazon Prime Video, Brad Beal said, quote, with the incredible Sir Patrick Stewart returning as the beloved Jean-Luc Picard, we're excited we can give Trek fans, both old and new, the opportunity to see him back in action. It's a terrific addition to our already robust catalog of exclusive Amazon Prime video content, end quote. For those in Canada, CBS Studios International has once again teamed with Bell Media, According to the Star Trek homepage, quote, the latest addition to the Star Trek franchise will air day and date with the U.S. on Bell Media's cable networks, space in English and Z in French. And the following day will stream exclusively on Crave, Bell Media's subscription video on demand service, end quote. For a link to the articles referenced, be sure to check out the show notes. So this has been a little bit controversial, I think, among existing Star Trek fans, because much much in the same way that people were a little concerned over having to subscribe to CBS All Access to get access to Discovery, now people who have access to Discovery will have to have a different service in order to also get access to uh, the Picard show. Um, I think that that criticism might be a little bit overblown because um, at least in the UK, like Amazon Prime is a lot of people have it. Uh, so first of all, you can get Amazon Prime, at least in the UK, you can get Prime Video as a standalone subscription, similar to Netflix, but it's actually cheaper than Netflix. But also um, Amazon Prime, like in the UK, usually is one day free delivery. So it's actually a really good service that a lot of people already have. So I think um, I'd be interested to hear from people who live outside of the United States what they think of this. But I think it's actually not going to be that much of a barrier to people being able to watch the Picard show. Well, I mean, the way it's split up right now internationally is that Star Trek was a day late on Netflix. If you were in the UK, it was not on Amazon. It was on Amazon as a CBS All Access channel in the United States, but that is not available in the UK. So if you if you have not yet subscribed and watched Discovery, you would essentially have two subscriptions, Netflix and Amazon in in the UK. I, I suppose what would really be telling and would really be controversial is if there are two shows happening simultaneously and a person has to subscribe to both. Right now, there's the option of, all right, well, I'll just cancel my Netflix subscription or my Amazon subscription. But how are they going to treat future shows that may be aired simultaneously? And I, th I think the, the net of most of this, because what you raise a really good point, but what that's going to do is actually put pressure on the providers and actually it gives CBS a really good negotiating position um, and probably will guarantee them uh, more revenue going forward, which is what we want to see. We want CBS to make money because that ensures this, the, the future of the franchise, as it were. Um, it's going to uh, ensure more competition between Netflix and Amazon. I don't think Netflix is worried at all about people dropping their Netflix subscription for Star Trek. <laughs> like, Star Trek is such a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of the Netflix pie that I don't think anybody's worried about that. But it will help boost the price of those international shows and, and give CBS a good base of profit, I think. 
yeah, you're right. It's not just about Star Trek, and Star Trek is that small piece of the pie. But but people are pulling out of Netflix. Like it's just it is. It's Disney's pulling out, right? So all their Marvel, all their Disney shows. Disney's doing it. Just announced its whole thing with with taking complete control over Hulu. You know, everybody now wants to start their own streaming service. You know, five years later. Except I think you're forgetting the fact that by by doing all of these things, there's actually a gigantic pool of people who have not yet signed up. And so presenting a comprehensive market of options for people who cut the cord, there is a gigantic pool of people who will be joining Netflix and joining Disney and joining Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, so I, I think the any concerns over people like dropping things over whether Star Trek is on Netflix or Amazon, I think are ultimately unfounded. I think people are more likely to have both than they are to, to drop. And before you know it, you're paying the same price for cable that you were before. Well, yeah, because they know that the market will bear that, don't they? Based on history. Yeah, I think this is a great, smart business move for CBS. I think this gets their you know, their original content out to more people internationally. And I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere down the road, a few years from now, once they have a a good-sized library of original content, they may even enter into the international streaming market and, you know, pull all of their shows and put them all in a centralized location on their own service. And by doing this through Amazon, they're getting it out to more people right now who will hopefully be future subscribers. The big caveat to this for our friends internationally is that no matter what, the show will air in the U.S. first, and you will have to wait 24 hours after its U.S. premiere. So bringing it back from the Picard show, back to Star Trek Discovery, in preparation for the upcoming Emmy Awards, Star Trek has started its push for the Academy's consideration. Star Trek Discovery, a fight for the future, launched on Wednesday, May 8th, to spearhead that push. A Fight for the Future is a two-floor interactive exhibit exclusive to the Paley Center for Media in Los Angeles, California which highlights the -the behind-the-scenes aspects of the production. Along with a virtual reality experience, items on display include makeup busts, costumes, models, concept art, and set pieces, including the captain's chair. President of CBS Television Studios David Staff said of the presentation, quote, This exhibit will allow fans a tactile experience never before seen beyond the studio's stages, end quote. The exhibit, which is free to the public from the time of this recording until Sunday, July 7th, kicked off the show on May 7th with a For Your Consideration panel, featuring the stars and showrunners of Star Trek Discovery. Sonequa Martin-Green, Doug Jones, and Wilson Cruz had interesting takes on their characters. Ethan Peck spoke about the weight of taking on the iconic role of Spock. And Alex Kurtzman said of Season 3's Jump to the Future, quote, Part of it was knowing we had all these canonical issues that needed to be squared away. Jumping them to the distant past or the future was the only answer. The challenge of season three is going to be this. How do you reinvent the world and the future while staying true to everything that Star Trek is at its core? End quote. For more information on the Paley Center, the Fight for the Future exhibit, and the Foyer Consideration panel, check out the show notes. In more good news for Star Trek Discovery fans, recent numbers indicate that the latest Star Trek series is in hot demand. Parrot Analytics, a leading streaming entertainment data analytics company, reported that between April 6th and May 5th, Star Trek Discovery was, quote, the most in-demand digital original series worldwide, end quote, and was also the number two science fiction series worldwide. 
It's worth noting that the finale of Star Trek Discovery's second season, Such Sweet Sorrow, aired on April 18th, putting it in the middle of the data window. I'll be honest with you, I was actually really surprised by this, and pleasantly surprised, because I know I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and I know I'm watching it, I know other people who are watching it, but to see that it's getting this kind of response worldwide in general is really encouraging. And I think it makes me feel like a lot of what CBS is doing with, you know, the global franchise group, the multiple shows in development, it makes me think that that they understand what a hit they have and that they want to maintain that domination and they want to they want to push Star Trek and they want it to be their Marvel universe. Now, I am going to dampen your enthusiasm just a teeny, teeny, tiny bit, because there were some pretty big other shows that were on hiatus and not being currently produced at the time. Plus, the well, okay, listen, statistics are always a little bit squiffy. Theoretically speaking, this could mean that most people are actually waiting until the finale, and then everyone's watching it at the same time, which would be in April. So, um, which would not actually be that great of news for CBS, because that means that people are dipping in to watch it and, and binge it, and then dipping back out again. We don't know. We, we, we don't really know what the underlying numbers look like, but nonetheless... Uh, it's pretty good to to make that ranking, and regardless of what you say, being number one in any kind of ranking for streaming shows is 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 really good. Well, captains, that's it for this week's Trek It Out. Now let's find out what happened in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Captains, Priority One and Mixed Dimensions have once again teamed up to save you 20% off any ship at any size. Completely customizable. If you're like me, despite the hundreds of ships available in Star Trek Online, there are only ever one or two that you most enjoy cruising in at any given time. For me, that was the Fleet Advanced Escort. It's sleek, it's nimble, it packs a punch. Sometimes it's the Fleet Battlecruiser or now the Fleet Cardenas Command Dreadnought Cruiser. But here's the thing, having printed my Fleet Advanced Escort was one of the most satisfying purchases of Star Trek memorabilia I own. It's it's up there with the TNG poster that I had signed by each member of the cast, which, mind you, took me four years to get done. This ship is mine. It's personalized, not a cookie cutter mold that everybody else already has. But you don't need to play Star Trek Online to print a unique starship. Whether Romulan, Andorian, Vulcan, or Klingon, you can explore an immense library of starships that players have already uploaded to GamePrint.net. Best of all, you can rename that ship to whatever you want, with whatever registry number you decide. With options starting at just $19.99 for a 4-inch color print and the reintroduction of their hand-printed models, there's no reason why you shouldn't add a unique starship to your collection. Customized just for you. And as we mentioned before, when you use Priority 20 at checkout, that's Priority 2-0, you'll save 20% on your order. So, don't just don't let deciding on what ship hold you back from 3D printing a new fleet of starships for you to display proudly in your office, your home, or or wherever you showcase your Star Trek memorabilia. Remember, priority 2-0 at checkout and own your very own customizable starship. 
Plus, you can visit their newly designed website and browse through their entire library. Or log into Star Trek Online and visit your ship tailor and upload your favorite ship. Again, visit GamePrint.net and start building your fleet. And joining us again this week from the Priority One Armada is Admiral Cat. Every major power in the galaxy has them. The Romulans have the Tal Shiar. The Cardassians have the Obsidian Order. The Klingons have... All right, well, maybe not every power. The Federation has Section 31, a covert and clandestine organization that, while they may share the same goals as the Federation, their means, much like their existence in the Star Trek universe, can be far more controversial. With the launch of Rise of Discovery this past Tuesday comes the Section 31 lockbox, the contents of which, while random, will contain some of Section 31's most desirable technology. At least desirable for the 23rd century. Every Section 31 lockbox will contain a faulty hollow disguise that will break when entering combat. There are also six new captain traits to choose from, three ground, three space, two new starship traits, several new kit modules, including decloak mind trap, agonizer brain scramble, covert assault drone, stasis bubble, and weaponized dark matter. Many of these drawing inspiration from Section 31 gadgets seen in Star Trek Discovery's first two seasons. New space weapons are also available. These new phaser beams or cannons generate less threat than normal phasers, and the regular phaser proc has been replaced with a boost to flight speed and turn rate. And captains also have the chance at getting two new consoles, the Computer Assisted Flight Algorithms console, which when activated improve your speed and turn rate, and also boost your damage when attacking an enemy's rear arc. The Boronite Laced Weaponry console infuses your weapons with Boronite that will open rifts near your target's location, pulling in other nearby rifts and causing kinetic damage to enemy hulls. The Section 31 lockbox is also finally giving us the chance to pilot two of the most requested ships from Star Trek Discovery. The Section 31 Intel Science Destroyer and the Nakhzhej Intel Battlecruiser. The Intel Science Destroyer, an upgraded version of Captain Leland's ship, comes with a Commander Science Intelligence Bridge Officer Station and a Lieutenant Commander Tactical Intelligence Station. It comes with an innate power to switch between dark mode, giving your ship a massive bonus to stealth, and tactical mode, which not only activates the experimental weapon slot and increases weapons power, flight speed, turn rate, and inertia, but also upgrades the Lieutenant Commander Tactical Station to a Commander Seat, while downgrading the Science Commander Seat to a Lieutenant Commander. The ship also comes with the Universal Console Enhanced Tractor Drones, the Experimental Weapon Invasive Coil Gun, and the Starship Trait Exodus Acta Probot. Meanwhile, Klingon forces can acquire the Nakhzhej Intel Battlecruiser, also known as the Klingon Cleave Ship, first seen tearing its way into our hearts during the battle at the Binary Stars. This ship features a Commander Engineering Intelligence Seat and a Lieutenant Science Intelligence Bridge Officer Station. As expected, this Intel Battlecruiser has a universal console that boosts your kinetic damage and charges your ship directly at your target, slicing through it like a Ginsu knife. 
The starship trait Ceaseless Momentum will grant you even more kinetic damage boosts each time you fire a torpedo. Both of these ships have the standard Intel ship abilities. For a full list of details on the lockbox items and ship stats, check out the show notes. So have any of you had an opportunity to t- play around with any of these toys? Or, if not, because we're recording this on the day that this dropped, is there something here that kind of, you know, caught your attention? Absolutely. I want that ship. The Which one? Both? Yeah, well, I take both. I don't know, because the cleave ship sounds a bit large, but I actually already won the Section 31 ship today. Woo-hoo! I know. I haven't opened it yet, so I'll keep you posted. That's awesome. Congrats. Well, maybe uh, you can do a shakedown throughout the week and give us a bit of a review next week. Will do. One of the coolest things I saw in Discovery Season 2 was when Georgiou uses the bubble to capture Kolsha, and uh, now that that's uh, officially in the game, I'm probably going to try to get that. I kind of have a uh, Terran Empire character going, and uh, I definitely want to add that to its kit modules. Oh yeah, a lot of those kit modules sound interesting. I definitely want to check all of them out. One thing to note is the weaponized dark matter, I believe, is actually inspired from that ball that was in Lorca's laboratory. Harry Mudd used, that said the most painful death ever. Yes, so. Hmm, interesting. Well, I have the other dark matter uh, module and I love it. So I, yeah, the weaponized dark matter sounds even better. Now, I have a question about the phaser beams or cannons, right? They, they generate less threat than normal phasers and the, the regular phaser proc has been replaced with boost to flight speed and turn rate. Do you think those can be re-rolled? Are lockbox weapons usually capable of being re-rolled? Yeah, I feel like you can re-engineer those weapons, but I, I, I got a couple. I just haven't opened them yet, so I'm not sure. Well, Captains, that brings us to a community question for this week's Star Trek Online News. What items from the Section 31 lockbox are you most excited to get your hands on? Let us know in the comments section for this episode or by replying to our social media posts on Facebook or Twitter. Speaking of lockboxes, last fall, the Federal Trade Commission promised to investigate loot boxes after Senator Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire wrote a letter regarding the heavy usage of predatory microtransactions. Now, the video game news site Kotaku is reporting that Missouri Senator Josh Hawley has introduced the Protecting Children from Abusive Games Act that aims to ban loot boxes in video and mobile games. The ban would end pay-to-win microtransactions in, quote, games played by minors, whose developers knowingly allow minor players to engage in microtransactions, end quote. The Entertainment Software Association, the video game industry's lobbying arm, responded by saying, quote, numerous other countries determine that loot boxes do not constitute gambling. We look forward to sharing with the senator the tools and information the industry already provides that keeps the control of in-game spending in parents' hands, end quote. While the bill is targeting games that are aimed towards minors, it's unclear how this might affect games that are played by a mix of adults and children. Check out the show notes for a link to the article. You know, I remember when the loot boxes were first introduced into Star Trek Online that, you know, this is this is something that has been simmering for quite some time, you know, especially when free to play MMOs started to hit the North American market, the the Western market and how games were monetizing via loot boxes. So I'm not surprised that this has hit headlines yet again. And everybody knows that more often than not, Video games are used as a scapegoat for 
other agendas? Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, this is just a bill that's been introduced and the FTC hasn't even, um, I guess they have this agenda item that's not even happening until August of this year where they're going to discuss the loot boxes. So nothing's really seemed like it's gained much momentum, but the fact that it's even making it to the Senate, at least it's on somebody's radar. So, you know, it may come up more, but I think that the lobbying arm that um, Entertainment Software Association has a point that, you know, hey, all these other countries don't think that it's gambling, so, you know, you should go with that, <laughs> basically, is I guess their position, but uh, I don't know. It could go either way, but I doubt they'd get a bill passed, is I guess my point in this. It'd probably have to go through the FTC if they, you know, had guidelines, then they would make the video game industry, you know, comply with that. Let's take, for instance, Star Trek Online's loot box. What's the distinction between what we see now in something like Star Trek Online and and gambling, an actual, you know, what, what we know of as gambling, at least in the United States? Yeah, if you weren't given anything as a reward from the box, that would be, you know, pure gambling. You're paying money for a chance at some type of win based on a random event. But because you get a guaranteed reward whether it's you know for lobby or for lobby and something else it's not it's technically not really gambling because you still get something it's interesting because i work at a game store and we deal in blind boxes and blind packs of game trading cards like magic the gathering pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh, and it's a very similar thing where somebody buys a pack of cards for a certain amount of money and there's a random chance that they will get you know a really super rare mythic card that's worth a lot of money but they're guaranteed to get one rare and so many uncommons and so many commons. Right. And each state has different, you know, definitions of how they treat gambling, obviously. Um, you know, so you would have to go to each state and they would have to regulate it separately. So where I live in Texas, you know, it, they're pretty strict on gambling and gambling devices and anything that, you know, it took us forever to even get a lottery. So depending on how this shakes out and how the FTC makes their, you know, recommendation once they have their meeting to discuss. I mean, it'll take a while, but this is interesting. So I'm sure we'll keep track of it and keep everybody posted. Do we think that we'll ever see the ban of lockboxes in our gaming time? It's a revenue stream for gaming. So to head off some of this litigation, they may make some changes, but I don't know that it would disappear entirely. All right, for Priority One Armada News, we have started the Tier 5 upgrade to the Colony on Beta Fleet. So we are still filling the provisions, but it should be on cooldown, I expect, at the end of the week. So very exciting. We're that much closer to that Lucari ship. And now it's time for this week's top tip. In an effort to lend a hand to new players, or even surprise the most veteran captains in Star Trek Online, here's our weekly top tip. One of the most difficult things to manage when leveling up a new character or an alt character is managing gear. And maintaining decent ground gear is almost never a top priority. Luckily, now that alt characters have access to almost any mission in the journal once they are out of the tutorial, there are a few pieces of gear that I recommend getting right away. A lot of players will agree that the best budget ground set to get, even for endgame content, is the two-piece Romulan naval kit and armor set from the mission Uneasy Allies, and the two-piece Nakul Temporal Operative shield and weapon set 
from the mission Temporal Front. Together, this combination gives any class of captain great stats for doing critical damage with an additional 30% more crit damage while crouching. The resistance and not cool shield proc will come in handy if you're on the receiving end of too much damage. And the great thing about these items is that you can get them very early in the game. And all four pieces can be upgraded for free to Mark 12. So you can use them all through leveling and even for high level ground content. While space sets are not guaranteed to upgrade for free, you should always check your mission rewarded equipment before discarding it. Now, Kenna and Elijah interview Mary Chifo from Star Trek Discovery. Screen. Captains, with us today is the astonishingly talented Mary Chifo, a 2015 BFA graduate from the Juilliard School's Drama Division. You know her as the mother of all Klingons, Chancellor Laurel of Star Trek Discovery. Mary, thank you so very much for joining us on this episode of Priority One. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so last night was Paley Fest. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What was that experience? Oh yeah, I got to see the exhibit at the yeah at the Paley Center in Beverly Hills. It's an incredible, incredible exhibit, and I would say anyone in the area. Uh, in, in in LA, in California, if you just come by, it's, it's in, open until July 7th. Um, they've done this incredible comprehensive both floors. They have tons of costumes, a few of, few of Laurel's costumes and, and my pieces of my prosthetic, which is a little jarring to see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the, 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 I'm so used to seeing it not all cleaned up, but it is a, a little bit of like, oh, right. They have to put pieces together. They've got about maybe like six different time lapses of different aliens. They have my full body um, alien um, a prosthetic that they did from the hips up. They've got that time lapse. They've got my regular time lapse. They've got uh, my buddy David Tomlinson, who's Linus. Uh, lots, lots of different really cool um, processes shown. Some full busts. Um, of characters uh, and a lot of beautiful um, pr production drawings, you know, that they, the source of inspiration for the designs and a lot of the, a lot of different um, uh, visual effects, sort of like before and after shots. And of course, I'm focusing on stuff that I experienced. They do show how like my, my speech in uh, episode three of the second season was completely green screen, except for what I was standing on. And you see how they created the entire, uh, you know, high council and which when I watched it, I was like, my God, <laughs> uh, well done there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really, really awesome exhibit and um, just thrilled to see it and thrilled that, you know, I get to play a small part in, in that entire world that they created. Small, I would argue that it is most certainly not small. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Now, I saw some of the pictures on your social media that you posted mm -hmm. from from the exhibit. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I got to say, it was fascinating to see. I didn't realize how many pieces your prosthetic came in. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was really interesting uh, for you as, as just a person going through that exhibit. What was your favorite part of it? That's a great question. And I do agree. Yeah, they've actually since they I've, I've gone through a few different prosthetics for Laurel. The first one was just 
the big cowl and then one face piece and then to help with you know more nuance and facial expression they have separated it into more pieces with the chin and the lips so that's been interesting to witness uh, just you know as i've developed the character they've been developing the prosthetic for the character so we're all still in process which is kind of neat what i really appreciated is i have been you know privy to what the application process is i've seen them design the outfits for me but i am not as exposed to the the visual effects side of things like really seeing the different steps that they take um, to create these worlds you know i either am on set like i said seeing the green screen um, and being like, I imagine it will be very fabulous. And then <laughs> I see the episode and it is. So I really did appreciate uh, that uh, they're uh, really showing what a process that is. And I did get to speak a bit with Jason Zimmerman, who's the supervisor, who's really incredible and, and so humble. You know, I think if anything, he gets reprimanded from the rest of us for not tooting his own horn enough. Um, <laughs> and his whole team, they just do incredible work. So. I'm just really thrilled overall that that side um, of the storytelling is getting so celebrated because we we could act up a storm, but it's really the cohesion of all the different departments that makes the the what makes discovery what it is. So yeah, not not one specific thing, just the fact that we are recognizing. How, how integral that is to our story. I have a question specifically, because I've seen the pictures of the Red mm -hmm. Angel costume. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. From the ceiling, which um, on film looks incredibly impressive. Yeah. Did, did you ever get to see that in person while you were filming, or is this like your experience of it? <laughs> yeah, I, do, I, do, I don't think I saw it fully fleshed out. There was a point actually, though, I was um, in my fitting for episode 12, and uh, Sonia, uh, who plays yeah, Burnham's mother, she was, I think she was right after me getting her fitting. <laughs> and so uh, we kind of crossed paths there. So I saw them in, in process with it. But I, you know, yeah, it was definitely, I wasn't on set when they were filming those moments. So yeah, a lot of these costumes, I'm getting to see them for the first time in the flesh. With, uh, with respect to last night's event, uh, did you get a chance to meet up with some of the fellow cat, your fellow castmates? I know that you have such, it seems that you guys have such remarkable camaraderie on set. Yes, yes, absolutely. That is 100% real and 100% true. And it all comes from the top down. Sonequa has been just the best leader anyone could ask for. She's so kind and giving and respectful of everyone's craft and everyone's time and it just makes us all want to rise to the occasion when when you feel seen and respected you want to see and respect others and uh you know that's what real leadership is guys i just hate to break it to you but <laughs> it definitely works love works um but yeah it was great i, I did i saw uh Zaniqua and wilson and doug and ethan last night and i actually just had brunch with Kenneth Mitchell and Emily Coots, uh, this today. Um, I, we are, we're very, very close. Um, I feel so grateful that there's not one rotten apple and, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's a true ensemble in that sense. No two people are alike. We celebrate our differences. We celebrate each other, everyone's victories, uh, whether on the show or outside of it. Um, the LA clan is pretty strong. There's a lot of us out here. Um, so I definitely see them the most. Uh, but you know, Mary Wiseman and I, uh, went to Juilliard together. We were in the same class. Um, so we spent four years prior to this being very, in, in very close proximity. So, uh, we were kind of 
ready to go. We, we, we knew we'd seen each other at our worst already. So, um, but that camaraderie of someone who did know me uh, on a deep level, um, we weren't necessarily super close during school, but it's a class of 17. So you, it's a family already. So um, that was just such a gift. And I think that helped, you know, us both be able to find our way and you know we never had a scene together so we were still building our own families within the worlds that we were thriving in within the show um but yeah and our yeah like emily has been out here um but a lot of the toronto crew um when we're in toronto we hang out together and then whenever they come out to la we find a reason to have a dinner or if Shazad's in town from london you know we all just really celebrate each other we have viewing parties I have a little fun uh, viewing party every once in a while and, you know, everyone just kind of gathers together and, you know, we, we, we were obviously there because we love to watch the show, but we also like to hang out. They usually go pretty late because everyone's talking and, you know, carrying on game nights. Yep. I'm just, it's just such a gift. Well, now mm-hmm. I have to ask, do you do <laughs> themed drinks like Klingon blood wine, like some kind of a mix? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Well, there have, uh, you know, they do, yeah, they do have those like uh, Klingon beers and stuff like that. But you no, know, we, if we get lucky, John Van Sitters from licensing will, will endow us with, with a few specialty uh, <laughs> uh, Star Trek themed things. But for the most part, we're, we, we, we stick to pretty pretty average partying uh, snackage and beverages. <laughs> yeah, that camaraderie is really, um, I it doesn't surprise me at all that you say that because I think mm-hmm. that that really comes through on screen. And one of my favorite mm-hmm. parts of this past season was that the writers gave um, pairs of actors some really good scenes, sort of one-on-one character development. Mm. And um, so when when you as an actor are going into a scene that's like that, whether it's, you know, you and Shazad Latif or the, the, mm-hmm. the sort of the, the, the three-way between you guys and Anson Mount, um, mm-hmm. those personal relationships, how does that help you or harm you when you're trying to play out a scene like that that's intimate? Totally. Yeah, I mean, Shazad is definitely the the strongest example I have for both seasons. And we luckily bonded very early on. I love to tell this story. Uh, it, I think it was maybe even the first episode. So we're both in full Klingon uh, armor, prosthetics, and uh, still getting used to it. You know, don't know how to move in the armor, but we're resting in between takes. We're just chatting about things. And then I, I am, um, Friends is a show that I enjoy very much, and it's kind of my com- it's my comfort zone. It's the thing that I can have on at any time, and I don't have to pay attention, or I can. I can laugh at my favorite bits, whatever it is. It's just it's my Wait, it's my security. Like Courtney Cox, Jennifer Aniston, Friends off of like yes, the nineties. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. The the nineties TV show, uh, Friends. So I so somehow in conversation we're talking about whatever it is, and I kind of offhandedly say to Shazad, who is like this very cool sexy British dude, right? That's my impression of him when I meet him. And I say, well, I don't know if you watch Friends. And he's like, Friends? I love Friends. And I was like, you do? And remember, we're both fully in Klingon makeup at this point. And I was like, oh, well. And then like, I just say that was the beginning of what kept us centered and what allowed us to have fun even you know when it's the 15th hour and you're sweaty and your lips are falling off or we're in the thick of a really intense uh scene you know in episode 10 or whatever it is 
we just he's very playful i'm very playful but i'm we also have very different personalities in a lot of different ways and we just like love and respect that about each other and i think it's really allowed us to just go to the next level on screen um but if what anytime it got too intense we could always just Hey, remember that time when Joey, like, blah, blah, blah on <laughs> Friends or whatever. Yeah. So I was, um, was going to ask mm-hmm. that because how do you, how do you, you guys had some of the most intense scenes mm-hmm. in both, in both series. Um, yeah. How do you like recover from that? How do you not get lost in that? What do you do when, when the scene is finished? Mm-hmm. How do you kind of bring yourself back from, from something as intense like that? Totally. I, it's a great question. I mean, I think, in a certain way, I benefit from the fact that literally at the end of the day, uh, I get my face taken off. <laughs> like I literally have this like visual like decompression. It's about 30 to 40 minutes of them cutting out the back of my prosthetic, sweat coming out, I have a hot towel. Like it's a real process of, you know, saying goodbye to the character for the day. Um, so that definitely, um, helps me and because Laurel is so extreme, but even so I'm, I'm, as is probably very evident if you follow me on social media, I'm very, um, passionate about my character, about the show. I, you know, want to do my best to let it serve a higher purpose. I view myself as a channel and a vessel, so I don't want to just kind of throw it off as like, whatever, I guess I finished that. I'm still thinking about it. And but it's something that I, I think I'm, we're lucky. This is a time as artists that we're learning how to take care of ourselves. Like the old idea of, you know, the, the, the struggling artist who's always in pain and, you know, lives a miserable life and that's what makes their work good. I'm hoping that that idea is becoming, uh, it's becoming more clear that that is not the only way to thrive as an artist and part of why I celebrate Sonequa so much is she balances that so well. She gives so much love and so much time, but she still takes time for herself and still gets centered for her scenes. Um, so it's a process. I mean, I think resting, you know, in between days where I'm filming, finding ways to, you know, just take a nice walk. Downtown Toronto is, you know, perfect for walking around. Out of the Um, makeup. Yes, out of the makeup. <laughs> I think I'd get in a lot of trouble if I... <laughs> there is always that, like, that, you know, that joke that what would happen if, like, you know, suddenly, like, James couldn't take the makeup off or something and I just had to, like, go home in the prosthetic or something. But this is what I look yet. like now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is me for the rest. It's just going to keep falling off. Eventually, maybe it'll just fall off. But, uh, but yeah, I've, I've always found that just uh, as... You know, I, I guess I've been acting for for a while now. Um, I hope to keep acting for a while more. Um, but that has been what I've learned more and more about myself is because I, I am more likely to keep holding on and thinking about things. And um, it's really important uh, to be able to let go and, and then discuss, too. Like, you know, Shazad and I will maybe, you know, have the discussion before and or after about the implications of the scene. And we definitely... I know, well, actually, that that episode in, I mean, that scene in episode 10, the Despite Yourself in season one that Jonathan Frakes directed, which is definitely one of my favorite scenes we got to do, was very complex because on the surface, it could have been one thing. And we both wanted to pay respect to the truth of the matter, even though, of course, Tyler at the time didn't know the full truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just really, you know, that was one where I remember the second we got the script, I was like, hey, can we talk about this? Like, how are we going to 
what is this? And I remember it happened to be, I stopped by, I think the makeup trailer and Sonequa was there and all three of us talked because we knew, you know, it was all correlated, even though the characters um, weren't necessarily, you know, talking about it together. And it just so happened to Sonequa got to watch the scene because she was there for her next scene. And she came in midway through and was like crying and like hugged us and was like so supportive of what we were doing. So I think it's just feeling loved and supported and knowing that we're all trying to tell a larger story and then, you know, but at the same time, you know, I'm still unpacking both seasons and certain scenes and certain moments and how they were on the day and how they ended up on screen. And like, you know, I'll be thinking about all of this forever. I'm sure. <laughs> Will you take Laurel with you? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, she's, uh, I mean, I'm sitting in my room right now and I have this, um, what I call the Laurel shrine, which is a little weird, but also, you know, from all the conventions and stuff, I've accumulated a lot of amazing fan art and certain comics and posters people have made. And, you know, I really, um, I honor, I say the characters that enter my life um, always enter at the moment I need them. And I have certainly felt that Laurel's journey from the shadows to, <laughs> to right center stage and owning herself as and her power, it's been a metaphor uh, for so much of what I've been continuing to learn to do and she's taught me so much and like I'm just so grateful uh for all of the lessons that I've learned uh because of her so she'll always just like the same way I could talk about you know in my second year I played King Lear and uh, that I still think about that production and what I could have done or how it worked and all the things that but it was right it came to me at the moment that I needed to learn about myself in that and that was also a metaphor of, of learning to own my power and and one of my classmates said to me you're a beast maza and then now i'm like literally rob i am a beast <laughs> you've said before and you know in, in previous interviews how that experience uh, with shakespeare has influenced uh your portrayal of laurel can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that can you go into that a bit yeah um i mean on a very technical level from the get-go just having um had previously had the experience of breaking down text that was somewhat foreign to me. I'd never, um, I had spoken a little bit of French in like a musical I did in high school, but other than that, I'd never tackled, you know, that much foreign text. And uh, the way you break down Shakespeare with looking up words and finding, um, you know, the operative word in the sentence what's the subject what's you know just ways in which you can really like view the structure and let it help you not hinder you and um luckily ria nolan who is our incredible dialect coach uh it also comes from a theater background shakespeare background and that was a vocabulary that once we knew that we had that in common we just like flew with it and so certainly episode four of the first season when i really had the first you know amount of real substantial scenes we really just dove in and broke it down and uh inflection you know because it's an alien language as opposed to an uh, it is a living language but it is not in the same way that like french like you really study the inflections that french people have been using for you know centuries whereas this is still somewhat new and fresh in regards to the flow of it and we really were trying to find you know a, a much more fluidity keeping all of the sounds accurate but how can we make it feel organic um, on a new level and not just um, barking on the bridge? So that was that was one element of it. Um, was, was IPA your friend this entire time? 
Oh, yes, very much. <laughs> and well, actually, what's interesting is that the the actual symbols that were created, there's like the ancient symbol, symbols that I do not know offhand, but um, but the symbols that they use in the like the Klingon text that our translator sends to us are they're not IPA, but they're similar in how you place them. And like, yeah, that just that's that um, that sense of a symbol being correlated with a sound. Um, I'm so glad I had that as a reference point. Um, but but then when it comes to just storytelling in general and, and larger than life characters and, you know, just epic tales, but infusing a humanity in them, that's the other aspect of the Shakespearean training that was just invaluable and in diving into these characters. As you said, you know, we did. <laughs> I actually said this is odd in, in, uh, when we were filming the uh, the aftermath of the fight when Cole Shaw has like, you know, paralyzed us and I like looked across at him and I was like never really works out for us does it it's just always a bit uh so we're always in these heightened circumstances so just to enjoy that and that's something that I know Shazad enjoys as well we both really thrive in the in the theatrical and archetypal so I mean Mary I, I have to say that I think that your approach to this character and the culture really has set a standard for any future portrayal of of what it is to be Klingon. Oh, uh, it you. is, it, you know, it, you know, the, the fact of how you structured, how you analyze the language and then how you embrace the culture. Again, it's just, it, I, I feel, I almost, I almost envy whoever, or I feel bad for whoever may have to fill in for a Klingon because you've really, you re I mean, the last time, the last time anybody ever really established something like that was maybe Christopher mm. Lloyd and something like mm. search for Spock, but you have knocked it out of the park. You really have. Um, Thank you. And and going back to language and and the Klingon language itself, um, you know those informed choices that you made to to construct the cadence, the musicality of the language. You then switch over in season two back to English, mm -hmm. but you deliver your English. We'll call it Starfleet English. Starfleet yeah. English. <laughs> I like with that. with a dialect with with mm -hmm. an accent yes can, can you talk to to me a little bit about that and what informed that decision so i presume it wasn't we weren't hearing laurel translated by a by a, um universal translator no yeah the, the the idea that um when i'm torturing Lorca, the first time i sp spoke english in the first season um that's when i you know allude to with mokai being descended from spies and that was something that um, we took upon ourselves to, to yeah, learn English. Uh, yeah, not a universal translator. I like that you made that distinction. Because mm -hmm. uh, I, that, you know, anytime you get new information, and that's, you know, coming from such a theater background, such a new aspect of creating a character is not knowing information and then finding it out in a later episode and just having to let that be like, okay, well, that's now a new piece of information that I will infuse in the rest of what I do. And so, um, but yeah, once I got uh, that first English speaking scene, Rhea and I um, did, you'll, yeah, you'll appreciate this, uh, um, knowing IPA and dialect sheets, we literally created a, um, a dialect uh, sheet for Klingon for, with wow. all the changeovers. So yeah. based on the sounds that um, are made in Klingon, like for example, um, there's only one sound for each vowel in Klingon. There's not, there's not like, you know, no you probably know that. Yeah, or like, who would obey all honest fathers? Like that phrase, there's just like, ah. Right. <laughs> and so um, that was kind of the baseline with the vowels was 
not always because I, you know, I didn't certain words just like with any, you know, even when it is an, an established dialect, sometimes for stage, you still have to um, reshape it so that it can be understood by an audience. But we leaned towards what those sounds would be in Klingon. Um, and then ultimately I decided since this was really her first exposure to humans throughout the first season and the second is that she's so smart. She's such a quick learner. Um, out of respect for her, I allowed her accent to not fade away because it's still very strong, but that she is learning how, how the Klingons, I mean, excuse me, how the, the humans speak and their cadences and, you know, you know, picking up on sounds. Um, and as someone who I don't do it to that extreme, but I am definitely, I love, obviously, clearly I love dialects and I love uh, all that sort of stuff. So I'm always hearing people's, you know, nuances. So I just liked that that was something that could easily transfer to Laurel as a character. Um, that, that, that she, is, yeah. <laughs> so that is just remarkable to me. I mean, the, the craftsmanship <laughs> there is just, you deserve all the accolades. I mean, really, it's just... <laughs> Thank you. It's it's really fun and delicious, and I am so lucky that Rhea Nolan is just such a great collaborator in that regard. And she just comes in, and you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we have a new director uh, pretty much every episode, and you know, some come back, and uh, like Olatunde is the director I've worked with the most, uh, and he is so lovely and so respectful of Laurel and the Klingons, and I felt that he, you know, did do four in the first season that really kind of opened her up on a new level. Uh, but Rhea has been there from day one and was there on the very last day of, of season two. And so she has seen the character evolve. She's a big feminist like me. We've had very lengthy discussions about the character, you know, beyond just what the scene is. And so it's just great. She can come in and give me the note that I know, I, she knows I need to get what the whole scene needs um, without, you know, not stepping on the director's toes, but just in, in shaping, shaping the voice. And so I, that just gives me a little extra confidence knowing that she's there behind the monitor listening. And she also knows when to take her hands off, you know, and like just let it flow. Um, and But she'll still like, if that is not enough, she will definitely let me know. Right. <laughs> so speaking of, of headcanon, right? You know, yeah. you know, tying these things together and creating the character for yourself in, in ways that as the viewer, we may not necessarily see up front. Mm -hmm. Were there any scenes or, or any any dialogue that was left on the cutting room floor that you that you wish really stayed in? Something that might have informed Laurel or or the Klingon culture as a whole. Um. Well, there, I mean, of course. I mean, this is another thing that I've you know learned. Uh, this, as I said, you know, I come from a theater background. This is my first TV experience at all, and it's it is it, you know we we live through these moments in the scenes there are certainly pieces of dialogue that uh inform the character and sometimes you know for time uh they do yeah have to get chopped up um and there've been i mean a lot has has stayed up there uh, which i've been happy for uh and sometimes it's like a glance is enough just in informing me on how i was embodying laurel in episode 12 i did have this line to pike about um, that, uh, uh, you know, he, he's saying that the Klingons were very brutal when they, they started the whole war, <laughs> that whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, I say that was before me, Captain, when um, uh, 
pride was confused with brutality and and or honor was confused confused with brutality and pride with savagery and um that was really lovely for me to see because there was this swath of time during the uh, second season where other events were happening with the discovery crew and you know laurel is presumably running the empire and kind of reverberating from her final speech that we saw in episode three and so that was just like a definitely a seed that helped me realize that she has really been working her butt off to to make to put get the empire in line and um try and teach klingons what it really means to uphold the real values and if you do yeah like i've said you've said i you know in reading the books about them to to watching them in various iterations at the core um the klingons are about you know true honor and and being a true warrior which is not about just being savage and brutal and while you know i think laurel's trying her best as we will ultimately see you know the, the klingons are still hard to keep in line so it's it's an interesting um thing to to create canon wise that you see that there is this woman striving to to um make the klingons rise to the occasion of themselves and uh whether she was successful or not is <laughs> kind of up for interpretation, but she's certainly trying. So that was definitely one uh, this season. And then the one other uh, moment that Sonique was spoken to as well was when she gives me the detonator at the uh, in the finale of the first season. She had this moment where Giorgio, she asked Giorgio to give me the, the pad to transfer it to my hand. And Giorgio's like, why would you give this to your enemy? And uh, Burnham says, today she is not my enemy. And I was like, whoa, you know, as Laurel. <laughs> and uh, so then then Tyler, you know, kind of spoke on Boke's behalf, which is in, in the, uh, the scene. And then I turned to Burnham and said the same thing. Today, she's not my enemy, but in Klingon. And while I think that moment is there, um, like I was saying, in, in, the, in our eye contact and the energy, uh, that was just definitely a moment that uh, certainly informed us on the day. And Sonequa and I adore each other so deeply. Um, I know that we really appreciated that this was a moment of celebrating two women coming together in love and not hate uh, when they easily could have. You know, you mentioned a, a moment ago about, um, you know, your background, you know, coming out of Juilliard and, and then landing this amazing gig. Um, some people may not be aware, but your parents are also very much involved in film and, and, the, and yeah. the creative arts. Mm -hmm. Did they impart any words of wisdom upon leaving <laughs> Juilliard or even, you know, once getting cast uh, on Star Trek? Yeah. Um, well, and actually, yeah, my dad uh, is a Juilliard alum as well, which is crazy. He was in uh, group six and I was in group 44 uh, in the drama division. They, they do it by groups. And... Um, it, and we are actually the first legacy uh, in the drama division, um, and uh, which is, I think, a real testament to how the school has continued to evolve because uh, Jim Houghton, uh, who was the head for, I believe, 11 years, who sadly passed away a few years ago, um, but he really came in and uh, um, took all the stuff that was really working about the school, the rigor in the classroom, the, you know, the heightened text, all the sort of stuff that... Um, the school is known for and really wanted to infuse a very strong sense of community and support and love. He got rid of the cut system. So by the time I was there, there was a very elaborate audition process. But um, once you were in, it was all about how can we just, you know, if you're struggling, how can we help? 
let's try and bond together as an ensemble, which, you know, and here I am with Mary Wiseman, like it would have been far more difficult if we had been in a classroom environment where we were wondering who is going to get cut. Am I going to prove myself? Like it's stressful enough. We're already highly competitive people. Like <laughs> I'm going to put the pressure on myself. Don't worry. Um, but anyway, so it was really a beautiful uh, four years with my dad being able to come and see me in shows and rehearsal projects. The first two years are in the drama room just with the fluorescent lighting. And it was the same rooms that he had done, you know, where I did King Lear, he had done Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, it was uh, very, very wonderful and beautiful. And we really, you know, helped galvanize the alumni base and all that stuff. But that's just a side anecdote. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but certainly, you know, we've already, my whole life, uh, because yeah, I, I've always respected the fact, my, fact that my parents are like working character actors who've made their lives and their living from, from being artists. And they raised me. Uh, in a very creative environment and um, supported me in anything. They were definitely not pushing me to be an actor, but they didn't say absolutely not. Um, I actually uh, thought that everyone was an actor up until about fourth grade because <laughs> I thought that everyone was, and, and you know, I've said this anecdote and some people were like, well, you're not wrong. I was saying like everyone pretends to be whatever they are, you know, like, you know, I, my dad would like have an audition to be a doctor or something and be like, you know, do I look like a doctor? I'd be like, yes. So then when my friend said, oh, yeah, my mom's a doctor, I'd be like, oh, and then she goes home and then she's an actor. And it's like, no, no, she is actually a doctor and studied to be a doctor. Um, so once I realized that, that's when I really started gravitating more towards like pursuing it. My best friend Eve and I started like making movies on her camcorder. And I went to a musical theater program for middle school. And then I had an amazing drama teacher in high school, Josh Adele. And from that point on, it was just like, I had more environments outside of my parents to realize that I really love the craft. And then once I was auditioning for schools and then I got into Juilliard, I was able to be away in a different state and own my craft. And my parents supported that. They saw that it was something that I really loved. I mean, I did soccer, loved dance. I loved art history. But the thing I joke, the thing I'm willing to suffer the most for uh, is acting <laughs> right. as of right now. And, you know, they understand that. And uh, but I will say certainly now, you know, post-graduation, getting the show, um, you know, they've had different experiences as actors, you know, and uh, but they have, you know, been able to lend an ear and while I'm still paving my own path and making, building my own relationships, it is such a gift to be able to at least have a reference point um, to be like, Hey, you know, what does this mean? Or like this, what is, you know, though, and they can say, well, I haven't had that experience, but you know, from these experiences I've, I've had, like, here's how I can at least support you or be some sort of sounding board. Right. So, you, yeah. Do you miss mm -hmm. the stage? Will we be seeing you soon back on stage? <laughs> I'd love to be back on stage. Yeah, I um, I mean, I'm always open to it. Always open to a a good a good play, a good musical, any anything. <laughs> I'd love to do some Shakespeare. I actually have a a, a Shakespeare project that is percolating. That I, <laughs> it's a it's an adaptation that I've done with kind of re a modern reinterpretation of a of a certain Shakespeare. 
um, that I'm re- and in a format that's interesting and, and new. But yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to be back on stage and and play. You know, I as has been clear. You know, I thrive in in these large archetypes, and of course, I felt particularly this season in the third episode, it was it was like doing a Shakespeare play. Um, and it's amazing to do a TV show where I'm getting to lean on on that level of, of theatricality. So just to let that transfer to an actual stage play would be awesome. Yeah, it you is. You're doing a, you're doing a Klingon opera, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> is that what it is? You're taking yeah, yeah. You got me. <laughs> I'd love to, I will say my one, uh, I would love to do anything, well, anything, whether it be TV, stage, or film, or anything, but, like, I have this dream of doing, like, a play with Gwendolyn Christie, because, like, she's one of my biggest idols, because she's so oh amazing God. and tall. Yeah, that's so, one of my, that's yeah. one of my bonus questions that I was going to ah! ask you today. <laughs> would you ever consider doing a buddy cop movie with Gwendolyn Christie? Because oh I feel my like God. that would be an absolute hit. <laughs> I would love it. I can't even tell you, like, there's so much that, like, she's obviously been a huge source of inspiration, um, just because she owns herself on the carpet. And it's like a certain type of tall. There are, there are tall um, women in the industry um, but I was certainly told, um, you know, I'm six feet, she's six, three, but, um, you know, people said to me like, oh, well, so-and-so is really tall, but she hides it really well. And I was like, oh, why would you want to hide it? <laughs> I was like, that's not like, I didn't set out to be an actor to hide. I just, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just one thing. And so, uh, I really appreciated that. Uh, she's been so at the forefront of just the way she owns a carpet and that dress that she wore at the Game of Thrones premiere this year was like CGI. Like, I don't even know how it happened and it's incredible. And uh, the way she's been, you know, in uh, doing more fashion and yet she's, you know, able to, you know, um, embody these, you know, leaning towards more masculine characters, whatever that means exactly. Um, She's certainly been um, someone I've looked to and, I just feel there's, it's funny, but I just feel like we could really break it down. I feel like we probably face um, similar challenges when it comes to walking in an audition room and the first thing they say is, oh, you're tall. <laughs> and you're like, oh, is that, is that really, uh, am I auditioning for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know uh, it was tall. <laughs> didn't know, yeah. Um, but yeah, buddy cop, I think I, I like that because I think we probably are, also both people that put are put in more dramatic things um but i think we both have a very strong sense of humor and i think we could probably nail that okay well i hope that happens let's put that in the universe so i'll try and i'll do like the spark notes version of of what i've done but i have written um an adaptation of shakespeare's othello and uh, I played the role of Iago in an all-female production uh, right after I got out of school and really fell in love with the play and fell in love with the character. And as is evidenced by my love for Laurel, I have a, have a thing for, for flawed characters uh, who you know can seem one way but might be the other. I mean, Iago's a little bit more extreme. I think Laurel has <laughs> tried to be a little more redeemable in certain ways. Um, But uh, one of the biggest things that struck me about Iago as a character is that um, I had always kind of assumed that he was a bit of a snake, that there was something slight and clearly duplicitous about him in just the ways I guess I'd seen it portrayed or when I read it or whatever it was. 
But upon playing the part, I realized we did it traditionally. It was all female, but it was basically like the reverse of what they did in Shakespeare's day. So I was playing it, you know, just like in the sort of traditional garb and whatnot. And what I found in the text and my interpretation within the context of the larger story was that it wasn't so he, he's more of a grunt soldier. And the whole bitterness about not being promoted is that he's been like paying his dues, or at least so he feels. And Othello promotes someone who's kind of more, you know, green than him and, and clearly probably has connections, probably comes from a wealthier family or whatever, who knows. But, you know, he feels betrayed by the fact that Othello should have been more of an ally to him and he's not. And um, the other thing that really struck me was that they call him Honest Iago. And when I read it in high school, I was like, that's just a little, like Shakespeare, that's, you know, we know he's not. <laughs> and, and yet I was like, why is he making everyone seem so kind of dumb or whatever it is to not realize? But then in playing the part, I realized that he was swashbuckling and kind of like a Jack Sparrow and that he's kind of dirty or at least mine. And I was, I had had a pixie, a pixie haircut and I was growing it out and I had also dyed it kind of like a golden blonde. So I had my roots coming in and I kind of slicked it back. And there was just something kind of like gritty, but weirdly sexy because I realized with men, we often associate a certain sexiness to that sort of archetype in a way that as a woman, if I behaved that way, maybe wouldn't necessarily be interpreted um, in that same way. So, and I realized that honesty to me meant something far different. I had a gendered opinion of, of honesty. I thought of it more as something that was pure and that something more Desdemona, something more from the heart, as opposed to Iago's honesty is from the hip. He was blunt. And obviously that's a theme that was becoming more and more prevalent uh, as we were rehearsing the show. <laughs> and uh, so that really struck me. So all of that uh, culminated in, in me wondering what would happen if Iago was a woman in modern day. And um, what would that mean? That she was a woman that had kind of tried to ingratiate herself in this male-dominated world and um, become like the men. Um, and that would inform why she behaves the way she does. Um, and to me, that's like the statement I want to make is that, you know, a woman, um, the, my idea, my, the ideal of feminism to me is that on both sides, that the masculinity and the femininity are married and that we can all celebrate those sides for, for all of us and that it's not about one defeating the other. I like that we have the term toxic masculinity for many reasons, but I like that we use the word toxic before it because it's by putting that word there, we're, we're making it clear that masculinity in and of itself is not toxic. It's like there's a way in which it becomes toxic and the way it's used and the way it's so, so it's kind of that exploration. So that was a theme. Smash cut to, oh my God, this is not the Sparknotes version. No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but uh, I um, have, uh, it's been a long time coming, but I have uh, creatively collaborating with the uh, Juvie production company, which is uh, Viola Davis and Julius Tenen's uh, production company. And uh, we have developed uh, the, this concept, which is color and gender conscious. So not just, the fact that you have a female Iago, you also have, you know, an array of different races being represented in all the different characters in a modern day setting that still illuminates the fact that um, 
we're all still suffering from this societal issue that we're all we all have the potential to bring each other down and that's what i is what i hope we're moving past um with all of these these positive movements now is that women are seeing oh we're not each other's enemies other you know minorities are seeing that oh no if i put the other minority down that's actually going to hurt all of us and that's the way we're being kept down so those are the themes that i hope to illuminate with this and then the big punchline so this is all the concept stuff and then I'll, i promise i'll stop but um is that we are producing it uh in virtual reality get out of here really <laughs> yeah interesting <laughs> So, I mean, I would love to do an actual stage production of this. And I hope that perhaps, you know, in the rehearsal process for a fully fleshed out series that would be about 17 to 18 parts as it stands, um, it would um, be something that, yeah, we would rehearse and then uh, then record. But we did do a proof of concept pilot last year and it just got into can. Uh, their XR, um, which is next week. So this is how I know that I'm allowed to talk about it because it will be out in the open by next week because people will be seeing it. Um, and we're still in the development process and, and finishing process, but we have a really kind of great, it's just the first two scenes, it's 12 minutes uh, with transitions uh, with, in, with Oculus, uh, Facebook's Oculus. Um, and um, I'm just so thrilled that we can finally talk about it. <laughs> but, but so it, when you say VR, is it, it your is it an avatar created for you, or you filmed it and it's going to be uploaded into VR where you can where the where yeah. the it is it was it was filmed live with a special and I I don't know how much I'm allowed to speak on like how we okay. did it because you know everybody's trying to do but yeah. it is six it is sixed off um, and so which means uh, uh, six degrees of freedom so that you can really like you can look under the table and around. The character so there's a little bit less of i think part of what makes i mean i'm still very you know new to the vr world but from what i've learned is like part of what makes um people get you know a little seasick or whatever is that you're seeing a a 360 world but it's still flat and so your brain's like i did it <laughs> this is it uh, <laughs> Um, so the hope with six off, which I think a lot of different people are trying to develop in different ways, is that by making it actually look fully three dimensional, you're able, your brain is a little bit more calm and you're able to last longer in watching the experience. So that's the real hope. I mean, I, I liken it to um, just in what the, the, the end goal is how Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, the story and the technology were forward thinking. Oh, yeah. You know, and great so film, yes, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I know, I loved it. I laughed and I cried. It's great. <laughs> um, but that—that—that's that, kind of the ideal. Is that you're pushing the envelope in, in every direction. That you're, you know, getting greater representation on screen in the actual characters. But then you're also doing stuff with animation that you've never done. So for us, it's like we hope that we will be um, pushing forward um, the VR. Um, well, I've got my envelope. Oculus Rift, and I will have it ready for that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll, uh, we'll see what happens at Can or Con or whatever. I, I always joke, of course, with my Star Trek, I'm like, Con! <laughs> uh, I don't think that's how I should announce it. But, um, but I'm glad to have it out there because it's definitely something I've been chomping at the bit to talk about for a long time now. And um, I'm excited. I'm really excited to see how it evolves because I think that there's. I'm excited about the VR aspect of it, but overall, I'm most excited about what this concept has the potential to do 
And I'm really hoping that um, we will be able to maybe straddle both stage and and VR and maybe film with with the story because I think it's one that you know we want it to be an educational tool. We want it to get out to people who need to see this story. Uh, certainly, yeah, younger younger people, but also educational tool for anyone who's maybe a little bit um, trepidatious about Shakespeare because they've had, you know, they've seen one too many uh, mediocre production <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is. And we know that when it reaches its full potential, it's remarkable and human and, and really, really um, exciting. So that's, that's been my biggest um, exciting project so there it is there it is folks <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing and, and like i said I'm, I'm just as excited i can't wait for for it to uh to hit the oculus when it does yeah me too me too <laughs> so before i ask you a, another question about star trek and and yes. Lorel, i okay what's your favorite musical and if you could play any part in a musical what would it be ah uh, uh, okay this is going to be very uh, um seemingly cliche but uh the the musical that really changed my life and shaped me as an artist was Wicked. Um, I saw it when I was in seventh grade uh, in New York. It was uh, not the original cast. It was Shoshana Bean and Megan Hilty. Um, uh, so it was like the, 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 the second round of cast. And we had been hearing, like my family had like heard, oh, everyone's got to go see it. And we kind of came in like, ah, oh, well, it's, I'm sure it's not. And, but I grew up, I had watched Wizard of Oz every day uh, for like two years as a kid. So I like know that world very well and I'm very much into fantasy and all that stuff. And so I knew I was gonna enjoy the Wizard of Oz thing. But what really struck me, and now in retrospect, all these years later, what was so cathartic for me as this seventh grade, like seventh grade is also like, that's the year, I don't know. I think most people would agree it's probably one of the worst. Like It's terrible. <laughs> I, it's, it's, like, just, it's terrible. It's just <laughs> one of those years that it's like, oh. But, so I went, um, with my parents and after the first act i couldn't believe that there was a second act i was like but there's more um <laughs> but what really struck me and even that just that first moment when she gets on stage is it's this character who is innately different uh she owns it she's a little bitter about it at the beginning and then obviously the evolution of the character is like owning her difference on a new level but she's not one-dimensional she's empathetic her whole crux is that she cares about the animals <laughs> and that she wants to do good. And so um, just to see that sort of character be the protagonist, um, which is why I think it has, you know, lasted as long as it has. And so many people, both men and women, have responded to that character and the story overall. And I also appreciate the way in which Glinda is portrayed because she really evolves and grows as much as Elphaba, if not more so, because she starts out superficial and ultimately becomes a genuinely good leader. Um, but... Uh, now I am so acutely aware of how we are still in such need of flawed, interesting female characters who are interesting and empathetic and how when we see that representation, when we can see ourselves on stage, that just completely, it, it's a game changer in how you are empowered. And I think that that's just one of those roles that if I hadn't had that at that time, I might not have had that extra oomph of, of empowerment to be like, yeah, no, I can play these roles or like, I can sing, I can, I can be a protagonist. Like we're all the protagonists of our own lives. Um, but sometimes, you know, the media gives us an idea that we are not truly worthy of being 
the centerpiece. And um, that was just the show that really, you know, made me realize that I could be. So to be able to give back to it by portraying that character would be an amazing. Um, but um, that's so that's that's the one I have to toot. But I, also, though, I'd love to grow into um, a Diana in Next to Normal. That's the other role that I would <laughs> on a completely a completely separate thing. But I just I, I think that show's really awesome and, and that character is so fun and those songs are super great. While we're on the topic of stage, you've mm-hmm. done quite a bit of uh, some work, some improv work over at uh, Los uh, Feliz, right? And, and yeah. So, you know, tell me about how you enjoy improv. And I think actually this is a nice way to segue a little bit too is mm-hmm. did you get a chance to do any improvisation as Laurel? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, I actually, yeah. So Impro Studio in Los Feliz, um, I met them through Star Trek. This is what I love about my life is like I can look back to a year ago, two years ago and be like, who knew that my involvement with this was going to lead to my involvement with that? But I met um, Eliza Pearl, who um, she's so I say like she's one of those people that just like glows. Like I remember I, she and she had in, she had interviewed me um, actually on the carpet for uh, the first season premiere. Uh, for Nerdist and uh, we spoke afterwards at the party and exchanged numbers and um, got coffee and she let me know that she was a part of Impro and that specifically she was a part of uh, TIG which is the improvised generation so it's in the style of next generation they improvise and the Impro is narrative so it's long form and genre impro- improv so all of their pieces they do Jane Austen, Twilight Zone it's all within a style um, and it's an hour long, really, you know, fleshing out a structure, but completely improvised, which is like mind boggling to me. Like, you know, I'm a little bit more versed in it now and I've seen it more, but the initial idea of it is just like, what? how do you do that? So she invited me to go see um, an episode and that was about a, a, a year ago. Um, and the fun anecdote is I ended up guesting on the show this, you know, a few weeks ago, almost to the day, uh, a year since I saw it and uh, so I saw that show it's a blast it's amazing what they accomplish and I think uh, TNG lends itself so well to this uh, sort of um, improvising because it is so structured it's like the style is so clear the you know we know when the act break should be there's usually an A and B plot when I did it you know it was like there were two clear distinct plots one was on a planet one was on the ship I was, of course, the leader of the planet, <laughs> but I was not a Klingon. <laughs> um, but it's it's fun and it flows and it's a genre that I, I know and love. So it really, when you are able to um, attach yourself to, to that, uh, then the rest of the improvising kind of flows from there. Um, but yeah, so I've just been watching their shows. They also have Glam, which is in the style of Glow, which I also guested on. And that's Ripley Improv, which is a... Um, uh, all female group, seven incredibly talented women, and Ripley after Ripley, Ripley from Aliens. So, yeah, I was like, once I knew that, I was like, okay, these are my people. Um, like, you like theater and science fiction and fantasy. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's been a real gift because uh, all of those women and 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 the folks in TIG are just really, really wonderful, giving artists. And I am, yeah, I'm actually. I uh, just started my intro class 
this past weekend. And uh, yeah, it's uh, just once a week and I'm really getting to stretch these new muscles that I come from so much structure and so much, uh, you know, uh, a huge proponent of the Juilliard education is a uh, component is um, adherence to the playwright, respect for the playwright. Why did he put a the instead of an uh, uh but uh, which I'm so glad I have. And again, served me so well with this role. But I think the other side of my brain, the also just trusting my, my gut is something that I want to do more of. Um, and so this has just like been this amazing gift um, that I've been able to to um, start start really flexing this muscle and stretching this muscle. And after all of that, I'm trying to think if a moment with Laurel where I improvise something. <laughs> it is I ah I'm sure. Well, I, you know honestly, it's not me, but Kenneth Mitchell is actually the best at improvising uh, as a Klingon. He as Colshaw. Oh my goodness. I mean, he actually, and they kept two of the lines that he did um, after he's paralyzed us and he like takes um, Tyler's blood to put on my finger to then sign the contract. There, that was, it was just a description. It just said like, he takes the blood and puts it on her finger. But you know, there's this gap of time and he wanted to fill the space. So he, you know, like, you know, what did he say? Like blood for my ink and thank you for my ink and then he went over to me and said pass me your pretty little finger like that was all him and uh and they kept it because it just totally worked he's he's so in character um he's he too i believe i'm so proud of him as like such an archetypal klingon and now he's played i think he's tied as to play the most amount of klingons in, in yeah, Kent. I think like, he's actually beaten it has now. He, with, has he beaten three. it? Yeah, because Michael Dorn played two. I don't know that another actor has yeah. played three. Well, that, that works for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I love that it culminated with him playing my son. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, you know, just like, you know, a, a nice Klingon who, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's my favorite improvising moment that I can think of that made it onto the screen at least. I mean, it must be hard to also improvise in Klingon. I can't imagine mm. that. That's something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, now you say it that way. <laughs> there was a, in episode eight of the first season, uh, <laughs> uh, we uh, needed to, uh, I, we had gotten the scripts, you know, a few days before, you know, it's just how it is. And we had our two big Klingon scenes together. Uh, just all in Klingon and we did our best to memorize as much as possible but the day before that I was doing all my scenes with Jane you know that's the whole Cornwall Laurel scream all that the fight so we were just you know pressed for time so we had requested some cue cards which you know just happens and it's that thing as an actor you just have to be like sometimes you have to ask for it we all have to ask for what we need so we're already feeling like ah um, but uh, so on some of the shots though when it's on like if it's on Ken, I can't have my cue cards to look at because it would be in the shot. So I would just have to do my best to remember what I could. But then sometimes it's like the third take and your brain's just fried. And so every once in a while I'd be like, what? like you know, start doing a slightly improvised uh, <laughs> Klingon. And Rio said like, oh, no, that's, that's uh, pretty good. I mean, it's not Klingon, but <laughs> <laughs> just like, it's the right amount of rhythm and time and space because that was the most important thing to give him the energy of what the line was. 
um, knowing that, that we could put it together. But <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So I want to go back a moment to to the actual series to to season two yes. a moment mm-hmm. um, to fill in some p- possible headcanon. Uh, yes. When we're on Boreth. Yes. Uh, there's an exchange between Laurel, Pike, and Tyler about whether who can go down, and yes. it's determined that he can't. That Tyler cannot be the one to go down because if he, if it is revealed to the Klingon Empire that he is still alive, it could throw the Empire into disarray. Yes. But then we see in the in the uh, season finale we see him on the bridge right. of your <laughs> ship. Yes. So what what can you tell us about p- perhaps what that what in your mind happened between him showing up at your doorstep and making the decision okay we can't worry about that anymore. Yes, yeah, there's definitely a headcanon moment for me. I definitely felt that it was and I think I've seen a few people kind of uh that describe this online that it's he's there um on the bridge with me but it's not like we were broadcasting it to the um the entire empire that he's there, that it's, it's my, my select few um, uh, people in command that have been allowed to be in on this, but that it was a very covert uh, situation, very Section 31, uh, kind of pulling out all the stops and him being able to communicate with me um, and me agreeing to helping out. Um, so I, and I just really appreciated the fact that um, he, he does know that he can come to me and that I will help him out um, and that, um, I really just appreciate that Laurel time and time again chooses the right thing over, you know, you know, she's not going to harbor anger towards the Federation or Burnham because things didn't work out quite the way she wanted them to. She understands that in this moment, it's about saving all sentient life in there in the galaxy. <laughs> um, no big deal. Yeah. No, no big deal at all. Um, and I just think that that is, you know, ultimately what she does uh, when she's given these these larger choices is that she does listen to the voice of reason. And in a lot of ways, listening to the voice of reason means listening to her heart because she she cares about um, Tyler as an ally and um, has come to see that the, the humans in the Federation are not just this, they, you know, in the way in which the Klingons can be seen as this one-dimensional uh, entity to the Federation, she's had to learn that the Federation is not this one-dimensional evil, you know, um, and uh, entity. Mm-hmm. I have to, you know, to, to continue to sing your praise. I mean, you have, you know, you're wearing so much prosthetic, and yet <laughs> your nuance in delivery, both your body, both, you know, your portrayal, and how you emote under all of that is just astounding. I mean, I know we're in Emmy season now, so they really should be, you really should be <laughs> nominated and win something because you just did a phenomenal job with uh, with the character. Thank you so much. I really, I do appreciate that. And it is, it's a, it's a, it's a unique skill to develop. And I just feel like I've been able to grow so much. And obviously I've been learning from the best talking to Doug Jones. I don't know if you've heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) He's played a few creatures in his life. Um, But, but Doug, and then of course the team themselves, you know, I mean, James McKinnon's department had, um, but then uh, Hugo Villasenor as well. He's been kind of, uh, he and James are the primary people that apply and then are there on the day touching me up all day. And there've been so many times where they've just given me little clues about like how to turn my neck. I mean, a lot of it's just been based on instinct and my mask work and all that sort of theater training. But, you know, prosthetic is something I haven't quite done before. So they are really good at just giving me little hints or like reminding me, no, you can really like take it to that next level of expression. 
um, by, you know, in, in whatever form. So it's really been um, incredible. And then I've also learned to trust my eyes, which ultimately makes it so I have to be completely honest in my acting. Like, I think it can feel like you're being not dishonest, but it can feel like, oh, am I just being exaggerate you know am I exaggerating or am I just you know creating a an idea of how I'm feeling but at the end of the day um the audience can see if it's in your eyes or not so if anything it makes me I have to be even more grounded right because in, comparatively in, yeah. in, on stage you know you have an audience member you know that's 10 rows deep they're not necessarily you know 20 rows deep they're not necessarily going to be able to see the nuance in your eye but you have a camera yeah. pointed you know it's just right a there. few feet away from your face um, but you've done you you did a great job with it. I, I really you know I really have to say. Thank you. <laughs> um, what else you know? How else can people follow you? And what can we look forward to from Mary Chivo? Yeah, please do follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I am still I I have a Facebook page which is um, Mary Chifo, um, but also I think the handle is Mary the Chief, as is my Instagram and my Twitter. All the same, Mary the Chief. M-A-R-Y-T-H-E-C-H-I-E-F. And that came out of actually my high school drama teacher called us all by our last name. And so he would always be like, Chifo, Chifo. And I just loved it. And then I ended up being one of two Marys in, at Juilliard. And I said, yeah, you guys can call me Chifo. And then Chief just kind of stuck. So that's the, that's the etymology of my Twitter handle. Um, <laughs> um, but yes, so soon I will be posting about this uh, Shakespeare excitement. Uh, I'll hopefully, you know, I'll keep playing with Impro Studio and we'll just see how that continues to evolve. I mean, I'm mainly in class with them right now, but, you know, I'm hoping I'll keep collaborating with Ripley um, in one form or another. Um, and yeah, I've got, I do have, you know, developing uh, a script with a friend and, um, just a lot of stuff percolating. And I've really been thrilled that this year we wrapped in December and I came back and actually January, like the third day of January was when I went off and did the cruise, the Star Trek cruise. So that was pretty exhausting. You know, it was wonderful, but uh, I've kind of just gotten back into my rhythm in LA, you know, come February and um, I've been boxing and back to my singing lessons. And like, there's just been a really great time to like, uh, reevaluate and and get back into the groove of what I love outside of Trek, which I obviously love Trek a lot and will always love Trek and will always love to be a part of it in whatever way I can. Um, but it's it's an exciting time of emergence. That's what I kind of titled this year uh, was Emergence and Hope. Well, Mary, I want to thank you so very much for stopping by and spending some time with us here on the show. It's been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are wonderful. I loved all the questions. We're so glad. All right, take care. Thank you. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, hailing frequencies are now open, and we're ready to receive all of your incoming messages. Episode 412's first community question was, what merchandising venues do you hope CBS most improves? From Facebook, Keith Chauvelin writes in, My kids are getting into Discovery as their Star Trek, so it would be great if there were toys to go along with it. I remember having my die-cast Enterprise D where the saucer separates and my TNG action figures and tricorder. I, I have to take slight issue with the fact, I hope his kids are like adults. 
because there is some there is some content that is not for children in Discovery. <laughs> but outside of that, that's wonderful. That's wonderful that he's bringing in the next generation, no pun intended, of kids into the the Star Trek family. I mean, let's not forget that in season one of TNG, a head explodes. And so, like, and yet I was still able to go out and buy a phaser or, you know, I, I, I can I can empathize here because I when I was a kid and I was watching TNG, I, I remember going to Toys R Us and going, oh, wow, I want to buy a Star Trek toy. I love mm-hmm. what I'm watching. And thankfully, I was smart enough not to buy a Star Wars toy. So I bought the, the communicator, the, the badge. I bought a comm badge, which I never learned how to put on. That thing was impossible to figure out how to put on. It was like a ball bearing with a plastic thing that went over it. Like it was just any sufficiently advanced technology is like magic, Elijah. I guess. I guess. I guess. I actually have my favorite TNG toy from when I was a kid. Uh, wow! Micro It's the uh, well. It's the Playmates Mini Inner Space thing. What has the little bridge and little oh, mini figures. Wow. Yeah, I love this thing. It's got a little, little tiny Picard, little tiny Picard. God, imagine how the size of Livingston would be. Yeah. Oh no, Livingston is there. See the ready room. Nice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this was my favorite, uh, my favorite toy growing up. So I, I made sure to have one when I was older. I want a discovery with the spinny outside ring. They still, I, to my knowledge, that doesn't exist yet. And I, I would love that. Love it. That really should be the frisbee. You know how they have the Enterprise frisbee? That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> From Facebook, Jamal Taylor writes, Cosplay and prop replica licensing. It'd be nice if we had more options. I get wanting to keep the quality up, but the current options are expensive, hard to get, and not as size inclusive as they could be. I completely agree, Jamal. I am a big guy, and I would really like it if they made shirts and affordable cosplay items in my size, so I... I'm, I'm right there with you, buddy. It's like we have we have three options. We can either buy a Novos, and let's call it for what it is. A Novos has been very disappointing in their delivery of of their recreations of costumes. I mean, it is it is not a secret that they have not been able to keep up with their the demand. And then there's Party City costumes, Rubies. right? Yeah. And then if you want to try to find something relatively reasonably priced, you have to look overseas and you have to go to eBay or you have to go to an overseas cosplay shop. And that's that's where I got my Star Trek Online uniform, no, that for isn't, instance. That isn't necessarily true, actually, because now um, there are several cosplayers. And if you go on, to, oh, I know the Facebook cosplay groups, there are a few that will take a custom order. Now, they will be expensive, uh, similar to a Novos, but you can get something custom made. There are people who do that now, either from the original patterns, which you can find um, in various places online, or, or they'll uh, design something for you. Oh, you're saying people here, like uh, tailors here in the in the, in the the United States? Yeah, people that are, you know, uh, experienced cosplayers who are sort of known to the cosplay community will do things for themselves and also for other people. So you can you can go down that route as well, but it is it is difficult and uh, it will be more expensive because you're basically paying somebody for their, you know, their one-off skills. From Facebook, Michael Gmurkin says, I feel like there's a missed opportunity to tell more short-form Star Trek stories via direct-to-DVD and Blu-ray movies. Be it a Captain Wharf movie one-off, or a Borg origin story, or the story of Kales, or whatever. Also, newer iterations of the Star Trek experience, perhaps even a Trek theme park. 
Yes! This was actually pretty close to happening. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a story last year about Paramount had bought some stake in a, a theme park that was being developed outside of London. I think it's called the London Resort. Now, they Paramount pulled out of it, but it was going to be like a Paramount-themed thing. Paramount's now pulled out of it, and they're actually struggling to get uh, licensed uh, content in there. But So it's it's clearly something that they are interested in doing, but we haven't seen it yet. Mind you, Paramount and Viacom are not in the best place. <laughs> so we'll see. And from many captains on many channels, one resounding request was more Star Trek games. Oh God. Casual mobile games, please. Please. I don't want to have to sit down on my couch with my tablet to play a Star Trek game. I just like want to... If they made Bejeweled but with Star Trek, there, I would it is. It's eat called, that they, they literally do. It's called Wrath of Gems. Does it still exist? I used to play that. But, like, they, it's, you know, there's there's so much stuff out there that they could skin as Star Trek. And I know that that's lame and cheap and whatever. But I they just bloody do it. I will, I will consume Star Trek almost anything. <laughs> I don't care if it's original or not. And we have no options right now. Yeah, I think that the mobile, and, and this is what I was kind of getting at last week about, about this franchising thing, is that, yes, it's great, but it can also be very bad because Trexels had a lot of potential. I really was, like, really enjoyed playing Trexels for a little bit. And then, and then it got really repetitive and, and it was a bit just too convoluted and the learning curve just was... Just, my point is, is that, yes, let's have more of these things, but let's be a little more selective about who's developing. Let's look into the company. <laughs> let's look into... I am exactly the opposite. <laughs> I'm like, just skin it and throw it out there. It will become very obvious wow. very quickly what sinks and what swims. And don't be like, from a software development standpoint, just throw it all out there. And anything that doesn't that doesn't make the cut, just get rid of it. And you'll be left with some stuff that's genuinely fun. But, you know, mobile gaming is huge, like just huge now. And the Star Trek mobile games suck. I mean, not the games themselves don't suck, but like in terms of your options and what you have no, available to play, it's just there's n there's nothing. You have timelines, and that's pretty much it. And Fleet Command, sorry, I should say Fleet Command as well. But both of those are really kind of epic games for a mobile platform. You know, and I'm a huge fan of like long form narrative console RPG games, similar to you know Zelda Breath of the Wild, um, you know, open world. RPG games, Red Dead Redemption, Grand Theft Auto, and I would love if somebody took the Star Trek IP and created like a, a long form narrative RPG for a console, like Final really fantasy Star Trek, well thought out. Yeah, like just something that's God, like I love that. <laughs> it takes you. It literally takes you. You know, a hundred hours to play. Yep. And it's got it's got a deep world and it's uh and it's a narrative story and 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 something that's complete and ends. And I love Star Trek Online. That is my continuing missions. That is my continuing journey. But I would love to be able to step over on one side and really go deep in one area of the Star Trek universe and experience that like on a console. Yeah, well, totally. And you know, I I I get what you're saying, Kenna, about throw it all out there and see what sticks, but I think that's what they have been doing, is that they have been trying to 
throw out as much out there and see what sticks and nothing is sticking because they keep throwing things at at crappy developers and i mean the only one that kind of stuck was timelines and even that you know like to to david's point in the chat you know it's you hit a wall and you basically need to do a microtransaction in order to advance. And don't don't forget Fleet Command. I know that that's a pretty new one, but they're turning over $10 million a month on Fleet Command right now. And I haven't played it, to be fair. It's a little bit too epic-y for my liking. But, you know, this is a classic case of they've taken a small studio, developed a Star Trek game, and it's done successfully, and they're building on that. And they just need to do that over and over again. They need to do like I know anything about the, the mobile gaming industry, but th- from my perspective, that's what I that's what I would like to see, and and let the market sort of self-select. It's interesting that you say that because when I reviewed the game on Priority One, I actually said that I, I wanted to play Fleet Command at my computer. I didn't want to play it on my phone because it felt like a bigger game, yeah. and. Uh, it, and that's I, I understand what you're saying too, kind of because sometimes you just want to sit down and kind of just do a mindless activity within a Star Trek theme. And you know, I used to play Wrath of Gems too, and I'm actually surprised I didn't realize that it was gone. And Timelines provides that a little bit, but even even Timelines you have to be a little bit invested in, and it's really more of like a collection game than than you don't really feel like you're making choices, you know. Episode 412's second community question was, Are you excited about the new Discovery Legends reputation in Star Trek Online? Do you think there are too many reputations in the game already? From Twitter, Drogan writes in, I am excited about the rewards. Going to get that EV suit on a number of characters. And no, I don't think there are too many reps. From Facebook, Mike Tripp says, I don't mind the Discovery reputation as it's something more to do with certain characters I've already completed everything on. Plus, I like Discovery. But with that said, I'm not a fan of the Starbase 1 TFO losing choice of marks and just going Discovery. Well, that wraps up episode 413 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But before we go, here's a community question for this week. What items from the Section 31 lockbox are you most excited about? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern on Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Twitter. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada. Saturday nights, the Armada broadcasts live to review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all STO players, new and old. Follow us on all our social media accounts for broadcast times, and if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. 
Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to heroesrisepodcast.com to discover their secrets. A very special thanks to our guest this week, Mary Chifo. Thanks to audio editors including Brandon Parker, Rand Hurl, Daniel Stevens, Winters, and Skiffy. Thanks to our producer, Jake Morgan, for assisting in the production of the weekly show. And we welcome to the team our new community manager, Shane Hoover. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper, with support from Jason Smith of the Priority One Armada. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners, Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Su-no! Engage! still can't believe it doesn't have a title oh jeez <laughs> if you're excited for uh, if See, you're prefer, excited uh, for the next law and order special picard unit <laughs> if you're excited for the next star trek series the we still can't believe it doesn't have a title picard show but you don't live in the united states okay that's uh, okay I, got, I have to like deliver that in a way that it makes sense or uh csi picard Charges your ship directly at your target, slicing through it like a Ginsu knife. You want to try it one more time because it charges your ship. Or Sean Connery that a second. As expected, this Intel Battlecruiser has a universal console boost to your kinetic damage and charges. Sorry. <laughs> Sounded like Bane. <laughs> <laughs> I give you permission to explode. Speaking of lockboxes, last fall, the Federate. Feder- oh my god. <laughs> Federation. <laughs> the Ferengi Trade Commission. <laughs> no loot boxes from your replicators, people. That's uh that's making the bloopers cat just so you know. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.